And this morning we're considering verses 18 through verse 20 of Matthew 28. I'll begin reading at verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, Father, we just rejoice and give thanks to you for the great blessing that your word is to us, that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we consider this particular passage, this ending of of the Gospel of Matthew, we pray that you would help us to see the truth that is here. That we would take seriously the call of your word upon our lives. And that we would be faithful servants who are sent forth to declare the truth. And so we just pray, Father, for your blessing now upon us. We thank you for your word and we pray for your blessing upon it. And it goes forth, that as it goes forth, it would find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil that brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of Matthew's Gospel. And it's been a long journey. Spread out over five years. Of course, there were lots of, wasn't necessarily continuous, lots of of breaks and diversions uh, along the way. But as we just consider the book of Matthew as a whole, we've seen that Matthew's been keen to show his original audience and to show us that Jesus is truly the Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh to save His people from their sins. And all this in the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And so that all along, even before the foundation of the world, this was God's plan and purpose. To save undeserving sinners and bring them into a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this has been accomplished. Even as we've considered over the past few weeks... Jesus gave Himself as that once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins when He died on the cross. And then with His resurrection from the dead on the third day, our salvation was secured. And because our Savior now lives, the blessings and the benefits of His atoning sacrifice can now be applied to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So what's next? That the purpose of God was fulfilled and Jesus accomplished what the Father sent Him to accomplish. What more is there to be done? 
Now Matthew is very brief in his summary of the post-resurrection appearance and ministry of Jesus. But we know from the other gospel accounts and also from the book of Acts that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection. And so if salvation was accomplished, we may wonder, well, what what else was there to, to do and say? Well, there was plenty. Because it was during that time that Jesus especially then prepared and equipped his disciples for their mission. His was accomplished, but theirs was uh, yet to begin. And that mission was to go forth and to bear witness of all that they had seen and heard from him, testifying that salvation and the forgiveness of sins has been secured by Jesus. And therefore they were then to call uh, everyone to repent and believe in the gospel to be saved from the coming just condemnation and wrath of God upon sin. This is the good news that the disciples must now proclaim. And it was at some point during those 40 days, possibly near uh, the end, is when Jesus gave the great commission that we find here in in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus explicitly gives this commission to His disciples, who will then lead the church in carrying it out, even to the end of the age. And beloved of God, this great commission is still in force for us and the church today. And so we would do well to consider it carefully, so that we can now faithfully take it up, as Christ our Savior has commanded us. And it begins in verse 18 with Jesus confirming the power and the authority that He has to give such a command. Jesus came and and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. All authority in heaven and on earth, that's pretty encompassing. And it includes the entire universe, all the created realm. All this authority has now been given to him. Now, we may wonder, didn't Jesus already have this power and authority? Well, yes, he did. And we saw it displayed throughout Matthew's gospel in his performing of miracles and casting out demons and evil spirits and even uh, commanding uh, the earthly elements of the wind and the sea. And they obeyed his command. And D.B., because Jesus was the very Son of God, He had all power and authority. And this is what we often refer to as the essential kingship of Jesus. That is because Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, that is God the Son, He rules eternally over all things. Jesus is King because He's God, the sovereign Creator of heaven and earth. And so the logic is is very simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because God created all things, well then He rightly and justly rules over all the things that He created. Well, because Jesus is God the Son, well, He shares in that essential kingship. The Son rules along with the Father and Spirit over all that they have created. 
The psalmist, for example, sings in Psalm 95, For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. And so clearly God is King over all creation because He created it. And we see this also in the New Testament where we see Jesus because He's the eternal Son of God reigning as King over the creation that He created. And the Apostle Paul argues this point in Colossians 1. Paul says that He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. Jesus, as God the Son was involved in creation. In fact, in and through Him, because Jesus was the Word of God become flesh, through Him all things were created. Therefore, He rightly rules and reigns over all the earth. This is further affirmed in Hebrews 1, where the writer says that God has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, because Jesus is God the Son, He reigns supreme over all. And this is the essential kingship of Jesus Christ. But as this passage in in Hebrews notes, this kingship of Christ continued on through His earthly ministry, that is, after His incarnation, and it continues even now after the resurrection from the dead. When Jesus ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And so Christ continues to reign as king in this essential capacity. And again, essential referring to the essence, because he's of the essence of the Godhead. God is king. It's tied to who he is. So then what is Jesus saying here then in, in verse 18, if he's already king, reigning supreme over all things? If he already had this kingly power and authority over all creation, why does he mention it here as if it were something new that was given to him? What's the difference? Well, the difference is, as the resurrected God-man, Jesus now reigns as our mediatorial king. And so a new dimension has been added to the kingship of Christ. Jesus now reigns as king, not just because He's God the Son, but also because He perfectly obeyed the Father's will as our mediator, as the one who reconciled us to God when He suffered and died on the cross for our sins, and then rose again from the dead on the third day. The mediatorial kingship of Christ is the special rule and authority the Father granted to Christ because of His perfect obedience as a man. 
as a man who represented us in the covenant of grace, fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law that the first man, Adam, failed to do. The Heavenly Father bestowed this authority on Jesus after He rose from the dead, when He perfectly fulfilled God's will and purpose for Him. And this is what Jesus is now confirming in verse 18. All authority has now been given to me in heaven and on earth. Because Jesus, as our mediator, has been given this kingly authority. And He's now going to send out the apostles and His church with authority to proclaim the gospel to the entire world. And Paul shows how the giving of this authority is tied to Christ's obedience on the cross. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, Paul says, "...and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." Again, so here we're seeing Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father's will. And because of that perfect obedience, Paul continues in verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him, and given Him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." God has exalted Jesus to sit at His right hand to rule over heaven and earth as the God-man, as our mediator. So why the, the two different administrations of authority, essential and mediatorial? Well, we find the answer in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul lays out the purpose of God and appointing Christ as our mediatorial king. And it's so that He might then work out all things in heaven and on earth for the benefit and blessing of His people, the church. The very ones for whom He came uh, to, to die on the cross. Ephesians 1 verse 19, Paul says, What is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the, that which is to come. And here's the mediatorial aspect. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things, to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Now next to the glory of God, which is the purpose of all things that God has done, Christ's kingship over the created world will serve the purpose of blessing His church, His people whom He saved and is now building up. And so Jesus rules providentially over all things, even now, in order to accomplish the plan of redemption. Not just the initial redemption of Christ, in Christ when a sinner's heart is changed, but the full and the complete redemption that we'll enjoy at the end of the age when Christ returns. This is what the Westminster Confession of Faith asserts in, 
in chapter 8, paragraph 2, it says, Jesus Christ, as head over all things for the sake of the church, rules. He rules over all parts of creation. And He makes them, and all their counsels and efforts, serve God's glory and the plan of redemption. And so as Jesus continues to reign now and work out the purposes of God to glorify His name, we the church, the people of God, benefit greatly because Jesus reigns as our mediator. And as He's reigning, He's always mindful of us as He pursues the glory of God in His reign over creation. And so it's this mediatory authority that Christ has now been given, which then gives great force to the charge that He now makes to the disciples. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. We're going to unpack this. Because Jesus has been given this great authority. He sends His disciples on this worldwide mission. And He will empower them to accomplish it. But the first thing they must do is they must go. They're not to stay in Galilee where they grew up, where their families were and their homes were. No, they're they're not even supposed to stay in Judea and, and Palestine. Jesus is charging them to go to all the nations of the earth so that the church will now cover the whole earth and not just one nation. Previously, Jesus had prepared His disciples for this great commission back in chapter 10 when He sent them out two by two on a short-term mission. In fact, at that time, there He he purposely restricted where they should go, saying in in chapter 10, verse 5, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the purpose of this short-term mission was to call the Jews to repentance, and to make known to them that their Messiah had now come. Of course, that's a message that would be largely rejected. But their earlier mission was also to prepare them for this now greater mission, taking the gospel not just within the boundaries of, of ancient Israel, but taking this gospel which has now been accomplished by the risen Christ to the very ends of the earth. And of course, this is what Jesus would later remind His disciples of just before He ascends to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. In Acts 1, verse 8, He says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so you see this gradual spreading out, beginning in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And of course, the rest of the book of Acts shows us how this begins to unfold as the apostles go in fulfillment of Jesus' charge. And so this great commission makes a shift in God's plan of redemption. That salvation through Jesus Christ isn't for the Jews only, 
but for people of all nations, tribes, and tongues. But even this shift has always been God's plan and purpose from the very beginning. See, long ago, God had made a covenant promise to Abraham back in Genesis 22 saying, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus was the promised seed of Abraham. And through Him, through Jesus, all the nations of the earth would now be blessed. It wouldn't just be a blessing upon the Jews. And so though it's new in its implementation, the church encompassing the nations has always been a part of God's plan. There's never been a disruption in God's perfect plan. He's always had one people in mind. The Jews first, and then the Gentiles added in later. And so then, beginning with the apostles... And passing down from one generation to the next, even to the present age. The Great Commission has spurred faithful missionaries to every corner of the earth, going, proclaiming Christ, and making the good news He accomplished known. But let's remember, though some are specifically and specially called by God to proclaim the gospel in faraway places, This great commission applies to all of us, even to those who stay closer to home. Now, we may not all be called to preach the gospel, but we all are called to be faithful witnesses, sharing with those around us the hope of the gospel that's in us. And we can fulfill this great commission as we share the gospel with with unbelieving family members, with neighbors, with co-workers, and with classmates. Wherever we go, near or far, As we go, we're called to bear witness to Christ. And this all toward the ultimate end in anticipation of Christ's glorious return at the end of the age. Remember Jesus had promised back when He gave the Olivet Discourse speaking about what was to come and the signs to look for. And one of those signs was this. And in Matthew 24, 14, He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. And so the church is called to carry out this great commission in anticipation of the end, of this end. And so we then must go and carry out this mission. Although go is the first part of the charge, it's actually not the thrust of the Great Commission. In fact, in the Greek, go is a, is a participle. It's not, it's not the, the main verb in the sentence. It's not uh, a verb in the imperative. A comparative being a command. No, the imperative in this verse is make disciples. And because this uh, imperative is, is in the middle of the verse, make disciples, it actually gives imperative force to, to go, even as it does to the participles that follow, baptizing and teaching. So they all can't become part of the command, but the main thrust of the command is to make disciples. 
We must go. We must baptize. We must teach. Because we must make disciples. Now a disciple is a learner and a follower. It's what the eleven have spent the previous three years being. They were Jesus' disciples. They learned from Him. They followed Him throughout that three-year ministry. Everywhere He went, they followed. And as they followed, Jesus made very clear that being a disciple was costly. And so we should also then warn others that being a disciple of Jesus is costly. Jesus told them that they had to leave behind their families, their work, and their homes to follow after Him. In fact, they might even lose their lives when they followed after Him. Back in 16, verse 24, Matthew 16, Jesus laid out very clearly what it means to be a disciple. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now this isn't as easy as it sounds. When Jesus says you must deny yourself, he's not, in talking about self-denial, he's not saying that you have to withhold certain pleasures from yourself as we often think of self-denial. Right? So I'll say, well, I'm going to deny myself dessert because I want to lose weight, and that's self-denial. No, what Jesus is calling us to do here is, is not just denying ourselves the simple, simple pleasures of this life. It's actually, He's calling us to a denial of self. A rejection of self. And in particular, a rejection of our sin nature and its thoughts and, our de- and its desires. And this is made clear in what, what He uh, says next, that we must take up our cross. Right? Again, not just to bear a hard burden, but taking up our cross means death. Death to self. Death to the old man of sin. So that we might then follow after Him. Putting on Christ and His righteousness. Living for Him and His glory and not for our own selfish purposes. This is what it means to be a disciple. So how then are the apostles to go and make disciples? Well, Jesus sets forth two key components by baptizing them and teaching them. First, they must baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll get to the Trinitarian formula laid out here shortly, but but I just want to focus on the idea of baptism. Baptism is the sign and seal of entrance into the new covenant community in the same way that circumcision was to mark entrance into the old covenant community. Baptism as a sign symbolizes the washing and cleansing of sin by the blood of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Baptism as a seal sets the individual apart as a member of Christ's body, the church. And the prerequisite to baptism is faith and repentance. And Peter would proclaim on the day of Pentecost, uh, Acts 2, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And so the sign and seal of baptism then is applied to new converts and also to their children, as Peter would indicate in the very next verse. But a new convert isn't necessarily a disciple. Remember, a disciple is a learner and a follower. And so something more is needed to make disciples. It's not just that we go proclaiming the gospel so that people are converted and baptized, but also that we take time to teach and instruct them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Friends, this is an important piece that's so often missing in the evangelical easy believism that we see all around us today. From crusades and large sports arenas to much of the seeker-sensitive church growth methods, they may get people in the door, and they may even lead to some to have true conversions to Christ. But you see, they're not fulfilling the Great Commission if they're not then teaching and instructing new converts converts in how they're now supposed to live in Christ. One of the most influential ministries in the broad evangelical church over the past 40 years was Pastor Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Church, I think somewhere outside of Chicago. Hybels and Willow Creek Creek were really at the forefront of the seeker-sensitive movement. But back in 2007, after a a years-long self-studied, they released the results. And as they did so, they confessed that they had it all wrong. Hybels notes, we made a mistake What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bible between services, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. In other words, they may have been winning converts, but they weren't teaching and instructing people. They weren't making disciples. And if they weren't making disciples, they weren't fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, sadly, there are many churches today still using the same methods who haven't yet come to the realization that Hybels did back in in 2007. And of course, this has been demonstrated by recent surveys done by, by the Barner Research Group and even Oligonier, which show that a large percentage of, of professing Christians really have no understanding of even the most basic biblical doctrine. They know nothing about the Bible. And much of what they do know is actually heresy. And so disciples must not only be baptized but they must be taught and instructed. And it's not just the passing on of information and and Bible knowledge, although certainly that's a great start, but it's how to apply that information and carry it out in their lives. 
or as Jesus notes here, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Jesus is talking about obedience. Right? We must believe, be baptized, and continue to learn and live a life of godly obedience. It's not just that we go to a, a, a crusade and walk down the aisle and profess faith in Christ, and then you go and you continue to live your life in the way that you lived it before. No, there must be obedience to Christ, to His Word. And so again, they're not fulfilling the Great Commission if they're not teaching people to take heed to God's Word and to obey it, applying it in their lives, drawing closer to Christ their Savior. A true disciple is one who follows after Christ and seeks to imitate Him. Not only in what they believe, but especially also in how they live. The two must go together. That's the kind of disciple that the church is called to make. That's the thrust of the Great Commission. Now, it's true as we think about all this, that this is no easy task, especially in a world that's in rebellion against God and His law. And even in our own society and culture, our own nation, there's an increasing hostility to God and His law. So how can we accomplish this great commission? Well, we accomplish it by relying on the all-sufficient grace of God and the two comforts which Jesus offers here. The first comfort is found in what has become the formula for, for baptism. <clears throat> in verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now this is, this is one of the key passages in the Bible in support of the doctrine of the Trinity. Right? That God is one God, but that this one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons but one God. That they are, these three are one. And as the confession, or the larger catechism notes, that they're the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. We see this truth in the construction of what Jesus says here. Right? In the name. There's just one name. Right? Name, the word name is, is singular. But then that one name is equally of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Three persons, but one name. Our God is a triune God. And when we're baptized, we're being identified and set apart by that triune God. But there's something else comforting about this. And it has to do with the, prep, the preposition that's used here. The word in. And though this isn't an incorrect translation, the Greek word is actually the word into. See, there's a different word for, uh, for in, though sometimes they are used interchangeably. But there is a slight difference. You see, if we take it that we're to be baptized 
in the name of, then it might appear as though we're only baptizing under or by the authority of the triune God. That is, in the name and authority of the triune God, I baptize you. Now this is true, right? Because Jesus has authority and He delegates that authority to the elders of the church to baptize. Then there is an aspect where in is, that is, it's true. And so it's, it's a fine translation. But, if we think about it as into, which is the word that's actually used here, it's a really a, a fuller, more accurate term. That is, we're to be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Into implies a closeness and fellowship. It implies union and communion with the Godhead. Indeed, when we're baptized, we're baptized into the fellowship and the communion of the triune God as we become a part of the body of Christ. This then becomes a great comfort. It's showing us that we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves. That we have a close union and fellowship with the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That He becomes our rest, our refuge, and our strength to carry out this great work which Jesus has called us to do. And this then leads us to a second great comfort that we find in verse 20. Jesus says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus promises that He will always be with them. And though He'll soon ascend bodily to sit at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly glory, He'll be with them always as He'll then, ten days after His ascension, will send His Holy Spirit upon them to be with them, to strengthen them and to encourage them, to walk with them each and every day, every moment of the day, even to the very end of the age. And that last part, beloved of God, means that this great promise applies to us as well, to the church today. You see, because the, 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 the uh, disciples, the apostles, they're long gone. But the end of the age has not yet come. But the Spirit of Christ and the living God continues to be with us, with His people, every moment of every day, until Christ returns bodily on the last great day. Truly beloved of God, He will never leave us, nor forsake us. And it's interesting that Matthew begins his gospel by reminding us of Isaiah's prophecy about the Christ. Back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, he says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is God with us. And now, at the very end of Matthew's Gospel, he records these words of Jesus, that Jesus the Emmanuel promises His disciples and us that He truly will always be with us. Brothers and sisters, 
Therefore, let us faithfully be about this great commission that Jesus has given His church. To go and make disciples. Baptizing them, teaching them, and instructing them in the way of discipleship in Christ. And no matter what we may endure along the way, we ought to find great comfort in the fact that you've been baptized into the name of the triune God having close communion and fellowship with the Creator of heaven and earth, the one true living God, and also being comforted by this truth, that Jesus your Lord is truly Emmanuel, God with us, always and forever, even to the very end of the age. And Matthew ends it all with, so be it. Amen. All to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you, Father, for this encouraging word and this challenge that you give to us in your word. This great commission. And Lord, we just pray that you would strengthen us, encourage us to be bold in sharing the gospel, especially in this day and age even in the midst of increasing hostility to You and to Your Word. Give us boldness. Help us to be faithful. To go, and not just to make converts, but to make disciples. So that those that we might share the Gospel with might truly uh, seek to conform their lives to Your example and to Your Word. That they're not just given fire insurance, but that they're changed and transformed into new creations, seeking to submit themselves to Your will and seeking to serve You and glorify You in all things. Father, we praise You and thank You for that great work of grace in our lives. And we pray that You would even now just draw us all closer to Yourself by the power of Your Spirit. That truly that might be what is happening within each of us. That we would be the true disciples. Not just outwardly professing Christ. But inwardly putting the old man of sin to death. And putting on Christ and His righteousness and true obedience. To show our gratitude to You for all that You have done for us. And so we just pray that you would give us this boldness, and that you would bless the ministry of our church and other faithful congregations, so that your name would truly be lifted up and glorified until the very end of the age, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King, to the glory of your holy name. In this we pray, in the name of Christ, amen.